Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Of Record is a podcast focused on the marketing and advertising industry from the perspective of two industry experts. Hosts Matt Farrar and Joe Clements are co-founders of Strategic Digital Services, a digital marketing firm based in Tallahassee, Florida, and founded in 2014. I'm Matt Farrar. And I'm Joe Clements. And this is the podcast of Record. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to a special quarantine edition of the podcast of Record. Um, you've got Joe and I on the show today. We're both in our respect. Well, Joe's actually at the office because Joe likes to go to the office. I'm... But it's a very big office and there's nobody here. That's true. I'm sitting in my guest bedroom at home like a responsible human being. I'm doing the I am legend approach where I just am alone everywhere I go. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So uh, we're bringing you a, a great new episode of the podcast of record remotely. Um, we would like to give a great shout out to producer Kyle, who uh, I unfortunately was not able to be on his last episode last week because I wonder I if he's going to listen to this or if he's like, mm, I'm over that. <laughs> so yeah, I don't like know. Under those things. Uh, I was not available because my wife had recently brought new human life into the world. So I was doing important things at home. But here I am and he's in the next room. He's not ready for his debut on the podcast yet. But as always, we've got a nice little roundup of news in the marketing and advertising field for you. We've got some hot cultural takes and some deep dives. So Joe, anything else? We're ready to get 
No, let's go into the the news rundown. All right. So this is out of Axios. Google is going to lift a coronavirus ad ban. So Google will begin to allow some advertisers to run ads across its platform that address the coronavirus, according to a Google memo sent to clients and obtained by Axios. This has actually been a fairly big deal. Um, And not for the reason you might think. I mean, most of the platforms have tried to address this because they're trying to prevent the spread of misinformation about coronavirus but what's actually happened brand safety that was the big reason yep but what's actually happened for a lot of brands or or organizations on facebook and google is that they haven't been able to spend any money promoting uh their legitimate content about how they're handling coronavirus which has actually probably stopped some companies from getting critical information out that they wanted to correct like you know and i think another issue here is this i think when you look back in a few years and you look at what's happened to local news specifically in newspaper uh, and smaller online publishers that destroyed them because yeah. what it basically meant is for a month every article used the word COVID-19 or outbreak or pandemic or epidemic and they couldn't run ads on it so they were having record clicks and then record low revenue per uh, per viewer so they basically that move basically destroyed dozens or hundreds of publishers uh, over the course of six weeks. So, I mean, I, there's that aspect to it that I think is is overlooked. So, yeah, thanks, Google. Appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe it was intentional. I mean, as but far as saying, I know, Facebook has not lifted its ban yet, right? So, Facebook uh, ads that I, say coronavirus are still getting caught up as far as I know. Yeah, I think maybe they were talking about lifting it a few days ago, I saw. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this has been an exercise in unintended consequences of um, of social media of, monitoring. Of basically because, everything. <laughs> yeah, but what you see is, you know, Twitter three weeks ago was suppressing and removing tweets about wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Turns out those people were right. Uh, you know, Facebook the last few days has been removing or suppressing posts about how to make homemade masks or where you can buy masks. Yeah. So the problem with turning all this over to an AI is the AI doesn't know. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't have context. And so we've had this issue where it's unclear uh, how much misinformation was actually prevented versus how much actual information was put forward. And in fact, what's happened in this whole thing is the government institutions have been responsible for as much misinformation, no matter how well-meaning you think they may or may not be, as any random Twitter account was. And the fact is, a lot of the impetus that came in even to mainstream media sources surfaced from people who understand this stuff on Twitter talking about this in late January and February. So, I mean, to me, this is a, you know, this is a victory for a free and open internet because it, it forced things to be dealt with sooner. I, sir, am shocked to find gambling going on in this establishment. Yeah, shocked. The um, government didn't do us justice. I'm, I'm just, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, I mean, not just the government, right? Like any institution ended up handling this. Any at, globalist institution. Any globalist institution. <laughs> we, we can't trust the, China's, the, the Chinese Communist Party. I don't or understand. The, or the UN, for that matter. Yeah. Um, but I look, I think that's one of the big things we're going to see is uh, the tide turn because of this one on big tech. I think this is a big tech PR bailout, right? Mm-hmm. They probably won't need a finance bailout. It'll be a PR bailout because they're the ones people are spending time with. Uh, uh, they're getting credit for building all sorts of little apps. Uh, so it's going to help them. 
uh, and it's also probably the just the abject end of privacy yeah. concerns. Like you're seeing a few spasms at the end with like Zoom privacy, but it's curtains. Like governments right now, state governments are developing apps that track your location. It's done. Like right. And it's all Bill Gates' fault, as far as I understand. Yeah, Bill, Bill Gates and the Trilateral Commission. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, what's, the, what's the next story? I mean, the next story is, I mean, also about coronavirus, not shockingly. But, uh, I mean, this is about the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which we're going to deep dive into. You down with PPP? Yeah, we're going to deep dive into it at the end of this you episode. It, you but this yeah, is, you know me. Yeah, you know me. There you go. Um, this is out of Bloomberg. So the headline here is startups are scrambling for access to $349 billion in relief loans. Um, this is interesting because it looks a little bit different for uh, a startup trying to apply for this than it does for, you know, your favorite coffee shop or your favorite Italian restaurant in town, um, which has certainly suffered a great deal as a result of people not being able to dine in in their restaurants and having limited options for, for takeout and delivery. So the Paycheck Protection Act uh, is geared at companies that have 500 or fewer employees, uh, if you don't know that already. Um, but it also has pretty <laughs> You don't heavy... know that already. You probably aren't going to get the money from this. Just yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you probably don't have a business or have to worry about yeah. that. But you should at least hope that if you work for a company that has less than 500 people, that your employer has in some way attempted to do it because it probably means some extra job security for you. Um, but it, it's interesting, and Joe, you and I were talking about this earlier. It's interesting um, when startups apply for this because it actually puts some... Uh, some rules around, you know, what you can do going forward yeah. if you want to get the loan forgiven. But then in terms of these companies that are trying to get to very specific valuations so that they can get to, um, you know, a series A or a series B round of financing actually may hurt them in the long run or go public. Yeah, eventually IPO. It puts them in a, a bad position to have to say like, yes, we were dramatically adversely affected by COVID-19 so much so that we had to apply a forgivable government loan. I, I think that's going to affect some valuations down the road. Yeah. Well, the other thing in the application that they talk about is you have to acknowledge that uh, the outbreak adversely impacted or threatened your right. business in some yeah, way. And so the problem is hardship. Yeah. Yeah. When d investors or the public markets go back and do due diligence, you're, the argument is, do you take a write down for taking this money? And, and remember many venture back startups carry eight, 12, eight months, 12 months, 24 months of operating capital on hand. So they don't right. actually need the money. They have a long runway to play with. Well, the problem actually is the, the, the startups that are coming to the end of a financing round or the end of some runway are actually put at a significant disadvantage here because those are going to be the businesses that are more likely to apply for relief under the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, companies that, you know, closed, like you said, an 18 or 24 month round of financing, uh, just got their capital. They're, they're not going to worry about applying for a two and a half times payroll loan because, they're already fully capitalized. They'd rather not take the hit from it. So it actually puts the the companies that have been around longer in this case, probably at a disadvantage yeah. because they're the ones having to worry about, can we keep payroll up to the series A or the series well, B? You know, the other part of this is what is everybody else in the market doing? If every other company is it socially does it, acceptable? Yeah. Yeah. If every other company does it, then you really don't take a markdown because everybody did yeah, it. If and every tech company a, in, in yeah. five years is dealing with like, oh, yep, they had to do this. Then yeah. it doesn't matter for anyone. If you're the, the lone wolf that did, it, then you're probably if, in a you know, bad spot. You know, 20% of companies, or you did it and a competitor didn't, it could sure. be an issue. Sure. Uh, moving on, out of Reuters, um, Amazon to delay Prime Day event due to coronavirus. Um, this Another is... Casualty. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, this is almost a non-story, but, um, you know, a lot of people think Prime Day is a really big deal. Um, Mostly my experience with shopping on Prime Day has been great deals on stuff I don't need or want. I mean, you know what Prime Day is for Amazon? Prime Day is a way that they goose their Q2 earnings. Yeah. And no other retailer is able to... It's a summer Christmas for them, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is smart. I think, you know, Amazon, and we've done a podcast on this, Matt. I don't know if you heard it. It's when it was a few days after the baby was born. But Amazon is really a prime pun intended to just kind of take over the world after this. Mm-hmm. You're about to drop, uh, you know, $1,200 into American households. Uh, they're not going to go to the store. The only way they can get delivered is through Amazon. They're uh, all going to buy $1,160 worth of toilet paper. So... Yeah, the big, you know, the tech lash is going to start to abate. So Amazon's going to be freer to make some of these uh, moves that they haven't really tied together. So tying together their, uh, you know, video product with their, um, you know, shop. There's just so many pieces in there that they're going to be able to start to bring together that, you know, Amazon, when you look back on this in two or three years, this is going to be the moment where Amazon went from being like, a really big company to potentially the world's first two trillion or three trillion dollar company. Yeah, I, the interesting thing about Prime Day too is it is a genuinely great time to get a deal if you are in the market to get um, an Amazon product, right? So if you're looking to get an Echo product, if you're looking to get something that Amazon makes, the best deals you're going to find on Prime Day are going to be the stuff that Amazon directly well, owns or supplies. I mean, Matt, there's an argument to be made here that one of the results of this is going to be that that Amazon store is going to get washed out of a lot of non-Amazon Amazon products. Because in a world where acquiring a product from China, if you can't do the Alibaba to Amazon flip, which is 70% of Amazon, um, very easily or it's more expensive, that cuts off a lot of competitors. But Amazon can buy at a large enough scale and subsidize all the cost along the, the supply chain to still be extremely cost just outright own the factory in China that's producing the things. Or or own the factory in America. Yeah. And, you know, nobody's looking at Amazon to do this, but I, I think you have to. If you start to bring manufacturing back to the United States in a significant way, you know, it's not going to be, you know, you and I just start a little startup factory and take a contract. The way that's going to work is Amazon's going to use the same know-how and tech they've used to develop these warehouses and apply it to different types of factories where they can well, switch and over the same, product lines. And the same political savvy to go in and get a tax credit if they're building new manufacturing well, jobs. And look, a, this is my other argument for Amazon is a lot of their regulatory issues are about to disappear. They're on the cusp yeah. of being the largest employer and dozens of congressional. Well, they're about to find an environment where the government is no longer adverse to them like widely succeeding and is tripping over itself in order to help them sell things in America. Yeah. To just um, simply stimulate the economy. But I mean, the interesting thing is if Amazon ends up owning the factory and they complete, which they've really not done so far, uh, but if they own factory all the way up to distribution, uh, you're dealing with probably what is going to be the world's first totally integrated vertical and horizontal monopoly. Yeah, I mean, but also buying a factory or making a factory has never been cheaper than it probably is going to be for the next two months. At least for the last decade. True. They can Uh, hire Elon Musk to tell them how to do it. Exactly. So, 
I, I mean, I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a good point, like owning the factory. Now I will say there hasn't been a lot of evidence that, um, you know, outside of the first couple of weeks, there's a big issue with getting products that are being supplied from China. So talking about not the yet because the, flip. the trade, the trade fallout from this hasn't happened. And right. I'm not saying everything is going to stop coming from China. That's clearly not true. But it could get but more expensive or get harder. I agree. It, well, w- what you will have is probably uh, the domestic subsidies going to producers of a given number of supplies of manufactured products in the United States. So the obvious one is going to be medical protective equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, once once Congress starts opening that up to look at it, Anybody with a good special interest group and a checkbook is going to get put on that list of subsidized products. Sure. And so you go very quickly from it makes a lot of sense to go to China uh, to source some things to uh, maybe it doesn't make sense financially. Oh, and also supply chain stability. Uh, we, we know if it's being manufactured in Tennessee or Nebraska that we can pretty much always get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of that also probably probably depends on what deal China decides to, to cut out of all of this. They're going to be forced to give something uh, to probably other countries, particularly the United States as a result of this. So uh, the, the deal that China cuts could end up being, um, you know, maintaining current uh, trade in order to forgive U.S. you know, a certain portion of U.S. debt to China. I mean, there's a lot I of mean, things that, that would be, be wouldn't table. that be the ultimate like Trump maneuver though? Yeah. To, to write down a massive amount of debt. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, but that that I think is yeah. is the play. That's what a lot of people are talking about is the smartest thing that we can probably ask for from China and be in a realistic position to get, you know, is a, a you know, multi-hundred billion or even multi-trillion dollar debt forgiveness um, in exchange for, you know, not tightening yeah. the noose on trade restrictions or something. Well, and then also you probably start to put some domestic investment restrictions in place because I think another piece of the fallout that's going to come from this in the media space pretty heavily is what is the involvement of America media conglomerates with the Chinese government? Yeah. And like this is one of the things that we, um, you know, we, we miss is the Chinese government it's not like a pseudo-communist command and control no. government. It is a hardcore, old-school communist government, and they are been extremely intelligent with about some, with some pretty stickers slapped on it. Yeah. So, how do you protect or you know prevent American media from becoming a proxy arm of Chinese interest? You don't download TikTok. That's how you don't download TikTok. Well, I mean, so legit question, do you go see Disney movies, right? Disney is, you know, got a lot of criticism in the last uh, eight months for changing scripts to to please Chinese uh, regulators so it could be released into that market. So I think as far as media goes, it's going to be a really complex situation, more so than the trade itself. Uh, but how do you how do you want to do deals that limit Chinese influence via you know financial pipes in the American economy or in the you know American society? And I think some of that will work out um, just kind of on its own, right? So I mean, Disney's had the luxury of being able to focus on China because they've had the U.S. market so locked down, right? It's it's easy to go focus on the Chinese market when you know you're going to put out seven multi-billion-dollar blockbuster studio movie hits a year, right? Like they're they're not going to have that this year. The only way they're going to be able to do it, and you heard Bob Iger talking about this, I think yesterday. 
uh, or even Monday, that they're going to have to make the decision probably to put some additional like feature theater releases straight to Disney Plus or straight to you know digital purchase only, um, just because they're they they've got to release them. They can't hold them all until twenty twenty one or hold them all until the Christmas season. Yeah. So they're going to have to uh, do because then they delete. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to do stuff in order to not to win back. I'm not saying like the U.S. audience has gone anywhere in terms of their feelings or sentiment towards Disney or the content it produces, but just no, in terms but, of convincing look, them to consume it. Well, the the problem Disney has isn't isn't the content consumption piece. It's the environment in which the concept the content is consumed. Sure. Disney's yeah. Most yeah, yeah. profitable. Uh, bit, you know, 40% of Disney revenue comes from parks. Parks uh, and merchandise, though. That's an important distinction. The merchandise is a really big part of that. It's not all park revenue. Um, Mer- so, I'm pretty so, sure the merchandise is in that category, too, and that includes sales of all merchandise, not just merchandise at the parks. Yeah, I mean, I'll double, I'll double check on what licensing was. I wrote about it uh, in the newsletter last week. Uh, so you have 40% there. Then you have a cruise line. Then you have theaters, which are also a group experience. And, you know, one of the things about the content is it is more valuable to release your movie into the theater than it is to release it direct to your streaming service. Absolutely. It becomes very hard to recover the investment you made, uh, you know, for in a theatrical release if you're going to go straight to a content stream. Uh, even more so in an environment where you just gave away a year for free to millions of customers in yeah. that streaming service. Uh, and also, don't forget, Disney has taken a hit on ESPN. Uh, ESPN doesn't have Has live nothing sports. to produce. Yeah. Um, so the there's worst a lot of- part about ESPN is all it is 24 hours a day. Now, like the worst part of yeah. endless talking head shows where is they discuss they sports. That's now the only thing that can exist on the platform. <laughs> um, so I think it's probably enough on, uh, Disney, by the way, I think Disney will ultimately recover and be fine. They have so much leverage and media. It's going to keep them protected from potential buyouts, uh, they have an enormous amount of political leverage. So I think that company recovers. They've also been smart. They took out uh, some bonds, so they have cash on hand. So they'll, they'll probably weather the storm. But that company likely looks very different uh, over the course of the next year than it does now. It does. Uh, the last piece in our news segment is out of Axios again, and it's entitled, What Americans Are Buying Online During the Coronavirus Outbreak. So... Joe, you've looked at this already, but um, I mean, let's talk about what the the biggest categories here. I mean, the biggest online shopping growth has been in protection products. That makes perfect sense. People, uh, you know, a month ago were not worried about buying masks on on Amazon or anywhere else. Yeah, uh, toilet paper, uh, of course. No one seems to still be able to explain that one. <laughs> uh, Over the counter drugs and then non perishables uh, are the things people are into online. Uh, you know what I think is interesting uh, and fitness equipment also is, is up huge as well as computer orders and apparel. What I think is interesting about what the purchasing behavior you're seeing is we have this trend where has supply chains for our retailers went to being uh, effectively on demand uh, supply chains or, or just in time supply chain. American households have moved the same way as well. So you know, you went from a time 30 or 40 years ago where it would have been typical to have a week, maybe 10 days of food on hand for the typical American family to because of the of the cost of dining out lowering because people live in cities and have smaller spaces, 
that maybe only having three or four days or one or two days food on hand is a thing. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I think we're not appreciating going forward is the potential for consumption habits to change and for people to begin dedicating more of their income to food. Like historically, um, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, the lowest cost of food in human history is what we've seen. So our food consumption patterns have been built around basically what do I want to eat? Right. Because price hasn't been a significant barrier and availability hasn't been a significant barrier. Um, you know, I mean, the computer category there is is interesting as well. Um, I, in fact, my my mom just a few minutes ago called and asked um, about a new computer for herself. She's getting ready to retire and she's in the education field. But Dell, um, knowing that teachers have, uh, you know, moved to remote teaching from, you know, from home uh, online, noticed that, you know, there's a lot of teachers that were just operating from, you know, before this, maybe an iPad or even their phone or an old computer, you know, they were using their primary desktop computer in their classroom uh, and didn't necessarily have a solution for doing it at home. So Dell, um, I mean, I'm sure other companies are doing this too, but is offering really steep education discounts uh, right now to get devices quickly into the hands of teachers at home. So my mom was calling because she is about to retire, wants to buy a new device and, you know, thinks it's probably a good time to pull the trigger on it because there's a lot of opportunity in the price field. But I think this probably helped people, um, that previously didn't have to worry about having a you know strong or powerful home computer all of a sudden need to think about that right uh, if you it, you know if you were in a position where you know your out of the office work was limited to mostly replying to emails or phone calls you know it, it wasn't mandatory that you had a really strong laptop computer or desktop computer at home you were fine having your smartphone and maybe a tablet um, but now all of a sudden like you've got to do some real work at home and maybe your company doesn't offer laptops to its employees and take that one step further Matt I, I think what you're going to see and I also wrote about this in a medium post is as work changes and remote work becomes more common not only are you going to see investments made in the technology, you're also going to see additional investments in the peripherals, yeah, uh, in the mics, in the lighting. You cannot find a, a USB webcam anywhere in the country right now. Yeah, uh, uh, Best Buy doesn't have any in stock. Amazon doesn't have any in stock. Like you cannot find, especially a Logitech one, which is like kind of the trusted brand name. Yeah. There, you cannot find an yep. external. It's webcam. because everybody, you know, your your ability to make an impression now is limited to this chest up. screen that we're all in and so it needs to be well lit it needs to look a good background obviously i'm not great at that i'll draw a picture on this one next time uh not great at background but you're gonna see people paying more and more attention to this stuff has professional standards and common practices start to develop around these things yeah i mean in some cases it may be people literally operating with devices that just don't have a camera feature built in at all so i mean if you're operating on a desktop computer at home especially like a windows desktop computer um, there's a pretty decent chance you don't have a webcam installed in your monitor Yeah. And look, I think probably one of the net results of this is it's going to harm the cut rate computer market because you're going to have people coming back to the laptop. If you think you're going to have to worry, you have people moving back to the laptop. And if they move back to the laptop, they're going to try and get a decent laptop. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, they're going to feel like they need to get something that's going to last for a few years. It's probably good for Apple, right? I mean, it's probably a decent time for for Apple. If you're going to be a remote worker, like you should, you you would expect that, especially as you move up, like the uh, skill range in remote work, you should expect to see the equipment people are investing in for themselves start to get better and better. Or the equipment companies are buying for their employees start to get better and better. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure there's plenty of, uh, I mean, plenty of companies that are trying to upgrade their equipment um, that are having the same struggle that consumers are right now. That there's there's not a thousand webcams for them to buy from one yeah. of their normal suppliers to distribute out to their remote workforce. Like the things are, I mean, the system was just not ready to have have this demand for something that is you know, mostly a, an every once in a while purchase because people that need webcams buy computers with webcams in them for the most part. Yeah, look, I think one of the things, and I know we have to wrap up, we're at about, I think, 30 minutes here. One of the long-term trends, look, it, it, whether you're in the bull case, the bear case, or the base case for how this all ends up over the next year, one of the things that's pretty clear to me is you've introduced everybody now to remote work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so this used to be like Tim Ferriss, four-hour work week, uh, that'd be fun to do, or maybe you do remote work occasion, but now everybody's been introduced to remote work. The, the benefits of it, the <laughs> Not while sipping their matcha on a beach somewhere either. Yeah, yeah, I'm like doing it with children screaming and dogs barking. Sure, you know, real real life remote yeah. remote work and I you know, I think one of the pieces that's come is we're developing conventional we don't realize it but we're developing common conventions around how we interact in Zoom meetings and about how we use Slack channels and about how, you know, we try and keep things out of email. Now that's coming to everybody, you know, up and down the line. So, you know, I think what you'll see, I heard someone refer to this as like the generation V generation virtual is this common acceptance of, you know, virtual meetings and virtual interactions as substitutes for the real thing. Now, I'm skeptical that you can move all work to that. But I think what we will find is very clearly uh, work where the work product is discrete, like it's a very defined unit. And uh, where the work product is relatively flexible in the time you do it are things that are open to be transitioned to to at-home work as businesses try and not run cubicle farms or not run open office floor plans where the employees are stacked on each other. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the commercial property space, you're probably going to have a, a bad year. Yeah, or not, because you're going to have some companies that just choose to buy the extra space. Yeah. Uh, but I think for most, that's not going to be the the mm. route they go. Uh, anything else you wanted to cover on this episode? So there was this last article. This was out of Axios on change in page views by content category mm-hmm. for select publishers. Uh, I you know I think the the three big things that are notable here: shopping up two hundred forty seven percent, health and fitness up one hundred seventy percent, personal finance up one hundred sixteen. Uh, what's down religion and spirituality down about 9%. And then um, I just zoomed myself out here. Uh, (laughs) And then family and parenting is down 36%, (laughs) which you would expect, you know, family and parenting to maybe be a little higher given the the situation. But what people are doing is shopping, uh, looking at health and stress stuff, and then personal finance. I mean, I think most 
people's you know goals of doing it perfectly or better or whatever have just kind of gone out the window and now it's just about survival and there's not a whole lot of parenting tip articles out there about just getting through the damn day yeah um so i think these are interesting trends like if you're a marketer to start shaping messages around how can you shape messages about what's cool to buy hopefully it's your product uh health fitness Great time to be in the virtual health fitness space, obviously, and then personal finance. So, I mean, what would be interesting to me is in that shopping category to see some sort of breakdown of, um, you know, what percentage of that is people moving from a purchase that they were normally going to make in person, yeah, uh, just moving it online, right? So, I mean, Instacart shipped that kind of stuff where they were where they were forced to go shop for it online, and what percentage of it is, you know, people browsing or killing time or in, yep. you know, in what it, cases they're buying something that they wouldn't have normally bought. I would have a theory that it, you would think that this is related to substitution. It looks like a lot of things people are still going out to buy at like the grocery store because it's out of stuff. What I think is going on is as you've increased time on device and browsing time, looking leads to buying. And so they're looking to pass time and that leads accidentally to buying more stuff. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the needs you're talking about, people are still running out to the Home Depot or to the grocery store, the Costco, and trying to fill those. Yep. All right. Anything else you want to cover for our wonderful listeners out there who are uh, consuming hopefully even more of our content because they're home quarantined with not as much to do? Consume more. Uh, I don't. Okay. Uh, With that, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Podcast of Record. Uh, If you haven't had the chance, there's some great episodes from the last few weeks that I haven't had the chance to be part of. But um, even some You should listen to them. They're pretty good, Matt. Yeah. Even some daily ones that uh, Joe and producer Kyle, um, who we'll always remember fondly in our hearts, uh, did together. But um, check it out. Make sure to check us out at thepodcastofrecord.com. Sorry, just podcastofrecord.com. Uh, if you want to reach out, if you've got questions or suggestions, and of course, leave a rating or review in your favorite podcast app of choice. That helps more people discover the show. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next week. Of Record is hosted and produced by me, Matt Farrar, and Joe Clements. Senior producer is Kyle Kane. Of Record is recorded at SDS Studios in Tallahassee, Florida. This episode of Of Record was edited and mixed by Kyle Kane. Our theme music is composed and performed by Rob Goki. Special thanks to Rebecca Romero, Nipa Eason, Shannon Glasner, and our team of interns here at SDS Studios. You can see more information about our guests and their projects at our website, podcastofrecord.com. We are, of course, on Facebook, and you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast of Record. For more information or to inquire about coming on the show, you can email us at info at podcastofrecord.com. As always, we'd appreciate your feedback and reviews in your favorite podcast app of choice. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.